1: The sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation, and stories. So, if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.
2: I feel like who art Ed? We to spice welcome to who arted where we explore visual arts in an audio medium i'm your host kyle wood and joining me today i have the host of another arts podcast i have nathan from postmodern art podcasts thanks for joining me thank you for the opportunity You want to tell our listeners a little bit about your show? Because if Uh, you're listening to this, you might be interested in the Postmodern Art Podcast.
3: (laughs) I would absolutely love to talk about the podcast. Uh, My name is Nathan Ragland. I am the host of the Postmodern Art Podcast, the podcast dedicated to giving artists who are wanting the world over the platform they deserve. I bring on some of the best artists today all around the internet of all different mediums of art, animation, digital, traditional, uh, music, film, whatever you want to listen. I more or less give them
2: the platform that I feel like they deserve. I absolutely love that about your show because, you know, my show has sort of a similar bent. Um, I try to celebrate art in all of its forms, from traditional paintings and drawings we might see in the museums to maybe some things that should be in the museums, like Mario. Yeah, you know what? That's a very valid point. (laughs) And so today we're going to be talking about a postmodern artist, a contemporary artist named Ai Weiwei. I got to say, this is one that when we first started talking about, like, who should we who should we discuss on the show? I want, you know, host a postmodern art podcast. I wanted it to be postmodern. I wanted it to be more <laughs> contemporary. But this is an artist I'd heard of, and he's been on my list for a long time, and I've avoided him for a long time. Ooh. Because some of his stuff, early on, I just looked at it and I was like, huh, what's that all about? Um But the more I look at and the more I've researched, you know, it's like everything else. The more you research, the more you learn, the more you see to appreciate. So Ai Weiwei has done some interesting things over his life and led a very interesting life. To say the least. (laughs) Yeah. He was born, from what I understand, probably August 28th, 1957 in Beijing, China. Um, Some sources will say mid-May. And... The only reason I can think of why that would have been is like when we're thinking of 1950s Beijing, you know, I I mean, that's like that's the time of Mao and everything. Right. Like there's a lot of social upheaval, a lot of stuff going on with the state that maybe record keeping wasn't the top priority for, you know, every little baby that was born in those days. Or if it was a top
3: priority, more or less, it was a priority to make themselves look better for some reason, which I don't yeah. know why records of births like depend on a different day would make a country look better. But you know, I, 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 we live in a different country, so I don't think we can really judge that
2: much. <laughs> yeah, but his father, Ai Ching, hopefully got that close to correct. Um, he was a poet, a fairly prominent poet, but in what will be coming, sort of a recurring motif. Uh he he was not always on great terms with the the people in charge in China. Um Mm -hmm. the Communist Party officials accused uh Ai Weiwei's father, Ai Ching, of being on the wrong side politically. Like sort of he would they he was accused of being a rightist, if you will, a sort of right. Mm -hmm. Um and so the family was exiled from Beijing. It seems like they were, from what I understand, and you know, Chinese geography is not my forte. It looks like they were in a relatively remote, sort of rural area in the north, and they were able to return to Beijing in 1976 at the end of the Cultural Revolution.
3: Right, right. I I can just only imagine what seeds these potential events
2: could be planting for our uh, protagonists of today's story. (laughs) I have no idea. No sort of foreshadowing there whatsoever. None whatsoever. Um, So 1978, he goes to the Beijing Film Academy. Uh, It wasn't, I guess, the best fit for him. He was more into the avant-garde art scene because, Mm. you know, through the the lens of hindsight, it would just seem obvious. In 1981, he left China for the U.S. because every great artist has to go through New York at some point if they want to be seriously taken on the world stage. So he studies at Parsons. Um, he started in painting, then he moved on to sculpture. He's inspired by ready-mades, you know, sort of like Duchamp, uh, yep. Fountain, all of that sort of stuff. That
3: that um, was the that was the person that I instantly thought of whenever I saw ready-mades, because if, if I was to list my personal favorite artist, Marschamp is probably the top for me. So whenever I saw ready-mades, I'm like, okay, major influence, got it.
2: Yeah, I mean – it it's been a very big influence on a lot of work i mean duchamp's fountain as i discussed in a previous episode was mm-hmm. named the most influential work of the 20th century and for good reason so 1993 is when he returned to beijing his father was ill and this is where he ex- sort of he starts exploring chinese culture in its traditional roots along with the modernization. Um, One of the things I find really interesting because people who are familiar already with um, Ai Weiwei and his personal narrative and fame today would probably be scratching their heads like, why did he go back to China? Because, um, spoiler alert, he's been on bad terms with the government in China. He was imprisoned for quite some time. He made um, a... Uh, heavy metal music video dramatizing his imprisonment and his incarceration. So he's been he's been doing a lot of stuff, but he has been sort of a thorn in the side of the Chinese government. I mean, to understand just how much of a thorn in their side, his name is a blocked search term on Chinese social media. Yeah, that was something that whenever
3: I saw that fact like
2: that surprised me as well as the heavy metal
3: song. I mean, <laughs> it, that, that, I mean, the fact that, you know, he he left China was more than willing to come back and do all this stuff and be a such a prominent presence for that government, especially with how much they like to control everything, but yeah, he's still able to like express himself as much as he did. I just got nothing but respect for this guy.
2: I I know. I mean, guts of steel right there. Like I <laughs> I could not do that. And part of the reason that I guess he did was in that 1993 trip when he came back to take care of his his sick um father. Mm-hmm. I guess his father's final wish for him or words to him were to um to think of China as his home. And he didn't mean that in the sense of like think of your deep you know cultural identity in China cuz Ai Weiwei doesn't doesn't actually consider himself to be a Chinese artist, an artist that's all about Chinese culture. He thinks of himself as an artist who is Chinese, but Mm -hmm. he took his father's advice to think of China as his home as sort of like a permission structure to make himself at home and be comfortable in who he is, his authentic self, even in that land where a lot of things were being censored and things like that.
3: I, I mean, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, especially uh, whenever it comes to your home, that is the place that you should feel more most comfortable with. And if there's something wrong with it, you want to be that change in order to make it as comfortable as a place that you are that you want to be more than anything else. So if Ai Weiwei sees something in his home that just doesn't really stick well with him, he's going to do what he can in order to make it the, the best
2: place possible. Yeah, I, I think – I mean, that's the narrative we see playing out, and that seems to be the way he's taken it. I guess I can't relate to it because I am like I have never been comfortable any place in any time ever. Okay. You know, I, I work in awkwardness the way my contemporaries work in oils <laughs> or clay. Um but but I guess he's he's cool with who he is and he is comfortable being who he is, even in a in a nation that has not always been so comfortable with that. Right, right. And speaking of discomfort, this is one of those things that I I really have a hard time reading about and even recounting. He, One of the things he was famous for in 1995, he took a Han Dynasty urn. And think, like, Han Dynasty, we're talking like 2,000 years ago. The Han Dynasty was from around 200 BCE to 220 AD or mm-hmm. CE uh depending on how you want to count it he smashed a a 2000-year-old vase just like <sighs> he he did like a, a a piece where they documented took a series of photographs of him just dropping and smashing that vase um which you know i on some level, I, th- I think is an interesting conceptual piece about, you know, the way we value things and what what we're doing with it and all that. But right.
3: I mean, it goes back to more or less what we were talking about with like the the home thing, more or less like taking this like I like this thing that a lot of people like almost worship at this point when it comes to like the Han Dynasty or whatnot and just making people realize, hey, this is great to learn from more than anything else. But like, also like we need to be moving forward and like keeping and worshiping stuff like this should not be the thing that defines us more than anything else.
2: Yeah. And I mean, as somebody who I think for me, the problem with it is I always hate to see someone destroying someone else's heart, something that someone, someone else made. But, but I think it's probably more like you were saying that cultural artifact that's so valuable because it's old let's face it that's why it's valuable it's because it's old you know I mean,
3: I don't know the the context of the the urn or the vase itself, like, you know, what it held, like, who made it or whatnot. But, like, if it was just some, like, random vase that they found that was based around that Honda IC, like, for all you know, that could have been, you know, some peasant that just made it just to make their house look good. Like, while, again, the cultural impact and the cultural history of it is valuable and it breaks, it can break anyone's heart, especially, like, admiring the history and the fact that it lasted this long. The fact that, especially when it comes to, like, how the history has kind of defined the chinese culture and like how they kind of use that to try to let people know hey we should stick with like the traditions of this we should this is how we need to do this and that and that and that i see what uh i was going for with this
2: yeah, like I say, it it's an interesting conceptual piece. on On some level, it pains me, but I also I get what he's doing. He mm-hmm. is looking at the Chinese culture, traditional roots, along with modernization. You know, it, that was not the only like Han Dynasty urn that he did something with. He also painted a Coca Cola logo on one. He took like antique furniture and broke it apart, then rearranged the pieces into something. Mm-hmm completely useless which feels like something duchamp would have done too yeah
3: um i, I just want to at least say like the the coca-cola one more than anything else that is just like you know we talked about like the heavy metal song that is just like a punk rock move right there like taking that tradition plastering on commercialism or whatnot to prove a point
2: yeah it, it feels a little bit like that phase where um you know the punk rock bands were were Adorning themselves in ties and other signifiers of serious high status people, Mm. you know, like, like sort of undercutting those symbols by, you know, appropriating them and everything like that. Um, And I think that's kind of interesting. And like I say, he kind of made his name in the in the 90s doing that type of work. Um, He became really well known the Beijing Olympics, at least like on the global states, the Beijing Olympics, two thousand eight, he was sort of designing the stadium, which high profile gig. Um, mm-hmm. it, the stadium was commonly referred to as the Bird's Nest, but I I love that the actual inspiration was a toilet seat, and he's like very upfront about that
3: that's something i didn't even realize until i saw this because i didn't realize he was the one that designed it more than anything else which considering all the stuff that we talked about that he did back in the 90s the fact that the chinese government would turn to him and be like hey we need you to present something that is going to represent how amazing our country is to the entire entire global audience that is like i i don't know if they just didn't learn from the past or what but the fact that they allowed him to do it and still make such a large political statement with what he made is just it's just incredible
2: <laughs> i know and it's one of those things like you, you once you see it you can't unsee it um mm-hmm. but again like nerves of steel there this guy's got to have ice water running through his veins because um <laughs> you see he also like while he was in the u.s i guess he was just like quietly a top rated blackjack player <laughs> like he would be from what i from what i understand he was like comped all over the place like oh, wow. they would send a limo from atlantic city to new york to pick him up to play in blackjack tournaments and stuff like that <laughs> um just like this dude is doing all of the things in a really you know sophisticated high level high stakes way um and I, I don't know. It's the kind of thing that if I were reading about it in a novel, I would be like, no, it's too <laughs> far. You're, pu- you're putting a hat on top of a hat here. You there know? you go. But he's doing it. It, it, and- just,
3: uh, it. Immediately, just like in this little conversation that we've had s- s- just with this alone and seeing like the notes and such, he is already one of the coolest people I know. Not just one of the coolest artists, one of the coolest people I have ever heard about.
2: I, I know, I know, like he, he should be doing ads for whatever that, um, Dos Equis or whatever. You know? <laughs> but I guess after, after the break, we'll come back and we will talk, get a little bit into one of his specific pieces.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton. The voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.
2: And so now we're going to talk about the sunflower seeds. Um, Mm. I'm not going to try the the correct pronunciation here. In 2010, he created an installation of 100 million hand-painted porcelain sunflower seeds. Um, (sighs) Whew. And how, I long guess,
3: you, ha, sorry, yeah. how long do you think he was working on, like, just thinking about that alone? It's not just a hundred million, like sunflower seeds, hand painted porcelain sunflower seeds. How long do you think he was working on that before he was actually able to present it?
2: Well, like so many contemporary artists, you know, he's not doing the drudge work with a lot of stuff. He hired like right. 1600 workers to craft all of those seeds. I think this was actually during his detention period. Oh, it was like right around that time. So he's got like a massive labor force, but even with 1600 workers making 100 million seeds, you're still talking each of them crafting like 62,500 seeds. I did the math on it. <laughs> um like that's a lot oh, and yeah. And getting into this, like he he's making them with porcelain, as in some ways sort of a callback to what he was doing before with those like Han Dynasty vases and everything like that. Mm-hmm. He's using the materials that China was known for traditionally. I mean, if you don't know much about China and Chinese art and everything like that, that like. One of the first things you learn about is like, oh, Chinese, the Ming vases and stuff like like China has a long history with wonderfully crafted handcrafted porcelain sculptures and everything like that. Right. So he's using that traditional fine material, but making sunflower seeds. And I don't know about you, but growing up, I I always would choose sunflower seeds, especially like during um, Little League baseball games and stuff like that. You know, like it was that kind of thing where, you know, you saw the pro ball players were chewing something and spitting it out. And it's like, okay, you know, that's that's what we'll do. And we'll pretend that we're, you know, and (laughs) I guess um, I guess Ai Weiwei, like when he was a kid in China, like that was that was a treat for them. He and his friends would would, you know, share sunflower seeds and stuff like that, because, again, China in the 1950s, especially in rural areas, there was some scarcity, you know, um, not always living high off the hog. They're not always having access to all the things that maybe we take for granted. Right. And getting into, because this is just so loaded with so many levels of symbolism (laughs) to say the least. (laughs) Yeah. The, the communist party, um, under Mao, they used the sunflower, you know, as a symbol for for their propaganda. They would talk about Mao as the sun and the people as sunflowers turning towards the leader. Um, and so, again, he's making these personal connections, but also the societal connections and in some ways appropriating or taking on the imagery of the state as a means to sort of subvert it. Right. I, th- I, I think I've
3: seen at least like a handful of these like propaganda pieces like here and there. Like I can't now off the top of my head, I can't think of a specific one. But like, honestly, when it comes to trying to portray yourself as this like benevolent, like all knowing, like everything is gonna be okay through me leader, like conveying yourself as the sun and as the people as like the sunflowers or whatnot. That is a very strong message that is really interesting to use that like it's interesting that that's the direction they went but it also like makes the most sense honestly
2: yeah and so now because i have talked so much about this i i want to get your reactions to to this piece do you have an image of the work i i do have an image
3: of this sunflower seeds piece and my god <laughs> Uh, like I just like right off the bat, like just seeing this right off the bat, I wouldn't even think that they look like sunflowers. I thought it looked like gravel for like half a second, but then you get like the, the up shot of the seeds themselves. And I wouldn't think that it was an art piece. I would think that someone just like, it it was like a, like one time piece of seeing like people like scattering sunflower seeds on the ground or whatnot, or just putting this like pile of sunflower seeds or whatnot to convey that point. But the fact that like it's there, it looks so realistic. There's so much of it. Like, it just blows me away that this was something that he was able to accomplish with or without help.
2: Yeah, I mean, they are really well-crafted mm-hmm. sunflower seeds. They, When you look at a detail shot of one of the seeds, they do look like real sunflower seeds. Um, and when you look at the installation, you're right. They take on this other quality. It, it almost looks like, you know... If you squint, it would look like a deep shag carpet or something like yeah! that. Yeah, like there's there's something about just this vast field of just like little specks and everything like that. Um, it becomes a sort of abstraction, and just the scale of it is really really impressive. Um, mm-hmm. And and in the Tate, it was in this really industrial building yeah it, it feels like a warehouse you yeah
3: know? So, as someone that works at a warehouse that makes up that that lines
2: up <laughs> yeah yeah it it feels sort of industrial it feels like this is like, like honestly it feels like like the storehouse for something that's going to be packed up for distribution later right
3: i mean and just like seeing like it's incredible as well. Like, you know, for some of the pieces, like some of the photos I'm seeing to go with this, like he just has like the people like kids or whatnot, just like on the ground, like with these seeds or whatnot, which like, which makes me curious and almost like wondering, did one of those kids accidentally mistake that as like real sunflower seeds and try to accidentally eat it thinking that
2: it was food or something? <laughs> well, one of the things that I find really funny is there was, um, there was, uh, like an art collective Mm-hmm. That when this was installed in the Tate, they took slingshots and like four, four groups or four people from this art group just took a slingshot and just launched four real sunflower seeds into the pile of a hundred million million hand-painted porcelain <laughs> sunflower seeds. And they put up a little sign saying seeds on seeds or something like that. Oh. <laughs> Which... Like it, it, just it. It seems so funny on some level. And another sort of permutation of this, um, there was a a smaller like gallery exhibition space uh, called Danson's House. Okay, they they were doing um, an art show on consumerism and international trade and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. they asked for people to send in the sunflower seeds that they stole from Ai Weiwei's installation at the Tate. Because we <laughs> all know that many tiny little pieces, maybe maybe you thought it was something you could walk by and grab, like a Felix Gonzalez-Torres thing. Maybe you just realized like, there's no way anyone's counting all of these. But it was understood some are going to go missing. yeah i I mean i got like 10 pounds of them
3: (laughs) (laughs) oh my god (laughs) i mean to be fair like i'm a person that has gone to a few you know art museums here and there or whatnot there's just always that urge to like want to like touch and get up close with like the art piece and like truly get to admire it And especially whenever it's something as simple like in the mind something that looks as simple as sunflower seeds it's like there's there's a hundred million sunflower seeds here One or two of them going missing is not going to break the exhibit. So I can understand where they're coming from. I don't endorse it, but I understand where they're
2: coming from. (laughs) No, I – well, and like I said, there's legitimate confusion because some art you're intended to interact with and some art you're not. Like Mm -hmm. some stuff you're – like I said, Felix Gonzalez-Torres is a great example. He had unlimited edition stacked prints that you could – you know just walk out with and other stuff you get within a foot of and an alarm goes off like it's it's a minefield in the art world in the museums right right um but this piece i from what i read like from people who actually like handled and transported it they were just like we just we knew stuff's gonna go missing. As long as <laughs> as long as you get about the right number there, it still is gonna have the same impact. Like you said, when you've got a hundred million of these, nobody notices the difference between a hundred million and ninety-nine million nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand nine hundred and ninety-eight. Right. You know, like it's it's still just a massive overwhelming amount of of seeds in there. Right. I got to say, like, as much as I've enjoyed talking about Ai Weiwei and his narrative and the ideas behind his piece, the ideas that drive his work as, as I do like when I was doing just a cold read on this work, because I always like to start off with just my initial gut reactions and interpretations. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about how this, this, it becomes this this field of seeds. It, you know, you compared it to gravel, and me to a shag carpet. It becomes like something else that, as I look at it, I I want to touch it. I want to interact with it. But at the same time, it just it becomes this sea of gray yeah. dots and bumps that, on some level, without the background knowledge of the personal connections and how it relates to. Um, the communist party propaganda and all of the clever things he was doing there. Just like my lizard brain looks at this and I'm just like, meh. Okay. (laughs) That's a lot of seeds. I can respect the craftsmanship. I can respect the work that went into it, but just as a visual piece, I'm not feeling it. I mean, to be fair, I think that what you're talking about
3: kind of might be what he could be going for in a sense, just kind of one of those, like, I don't know, at least for me, like, I'm looking at this, thinking about what you're talking about, and it's one of those, like, you know, the spectacle of a hundred million hand-crafted porcelain seeds, you know, after a while, again, you just kind of look at it as a whole, and you're just thinking to yourself, like, wow, that's just a lot. Like, it's just a lot, it's not, you know, it's not some, like, gorgeous Greek sculpture trying to convey, like, a model or something like that, but that's also kind of what I might be trying to go for in a way. Do you kind of get what I'm getting at?
2: I, I do. And and I think this is why I struggled with it. And this is why, uh, if I'm being honest, this is probably why I avoided it for a long time. Mm. Um, Because I kind of knew I'd have to get to this at some point because I, way, And this specific piece is on the American, um, the, for, American high school students, the AP art history required works list. So this is one of those things that kids across the U S at least are learning about. Right. And, and I, want to make stuff that's a resource that's valuable for them. But I, I look at this, I always like to, to talk about work that I really enjoy. And this one, I like it on the conceptual level. I'm not digging it on the visual Right. But then, as I learn more, I I find more that I appreciate. Um, but it, I just look at this and I'm like, well, how is that different than going to going to a farm and looking in their silo? Well,
3: <laughs> I, know? I I mean that's fair. I mean, for some artists, like it is about the the visual itself. But I feel like, especially you know, since we've been talking about I, you know, the way that he likes to go about this stuff is not just for the visual aspect of it, but a lot more with like the backstory and the meaning behind it. He's more of a, he, he, I feel like his pieces are more or less statement pieces more than they are visual spectacles more than anything else. So like as much as I'd love to find some way to, you know, absolutely gawk at, you know, a field of gray seeds or whatnot, hearing that backstory or more or less gives me the full appreciation of this art piece more than anything else. Cause I mean, like, I, I'm sure if anyone can dedicate themselves. They can make a hundred million of anything, but congratulations. You make a hundred million of something, but like, what's the purpose behind it? Like he's trying to make like this strong statement, concerning uh, you know, something that we teased that a little earlier. He's trying to make that strong statement, talking about like his, his home, how he grew up, what he was forced to deal with, how, you know, he suffered in certain circumstances and, you know, with the different influences and the different backstories or whatnot, like, with this one, like, again, I'd love to gawk about something gorgeous about it, but I think at the end of the day, he's more focused on trying to make sure that the statement he's trying to say is the loudest thing possible of this piece.
2: Fair enough. I think that's good. Um, Anything else you want to say about it before we wrap it up? Can, I, I just have... The one thing that I because whenever I was, like, quickly
3: peeking at uh, Weiwei's uh, art pieces or whatnot, like this is probably a a good example of it, but like a lot of his pieces are like huge that I've noticed. Like he likes to really like take up as much space as possible when possible. Do you think like that's, uh, how much do you think of that as like intentional? Like how much of that is how much of that is like, he needs the space in order to tell the statement or he has the space. He's going to use as much of it to tell that statement.
2: I feel like a lot of it is probably because, scale affects audience perception. You know, when you make something that is on that monumental scale, people have to stop and take notice. You know, and yeah. it because his work is so conceptual, you need that you need that scale, that monumentality to it, it it's kind of yelling at the viewer, saying, "Hey, pay attention to me right now! You need to. I've got something important, and it is so important. I'm I'm doing it on this massive scale, you know. Yeah, it's it it's a billboard instead of a flyer. Yeah, there
3: you go. That that's probably I mean, the best way we could probably explain his work more than anything else. It's
2: <laughs> I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three point rating scale. And where should this hang? The loo? Is this something to look at? The lab? lab. Is this something to learn from? Or the loo? British for that. There's a joke in there somewhere. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, that's terrible.
3: I think this... This might be an interesting statement. I believe like this piece is a piece for the public more than anything else. Certain fact that, like I said, what we've talked about with trying to make whatever statement or whatnot, this should be something that should be out there in front of people's faces and letting people know, Hey, this is what's going on. I fully, that's what I would probably try to, I way way. I, I believe that's what he would want to showcase with this piece more than anything else.
2: Yeah. So it seems like a museum piece for public display, public consumption. I, yeah, I, I buy that. Um, I I actually feel like this is, for my mind, this is more of a lab piece, just because it's the ideas that I find so interesting. You know, conceptual art—the idea is the art. If I were looking at this purely in the aesthetics, I would say it's it would it would be kind of a boring piece to me. But because of the backstory, because of the richness of that. Um, because he's got so much to say, you know, I feel like this is one for me to learn from, even though mm-hmm. if I'm being totally honest, which I have been throughout, yep. I don't really like it. I, you know, it's I, the eat your vegetables of art. Yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> that is a great description. Also, I just want to say for the public idea, like the going to museums, I, I just had a funny thought. I It would be probably the most convenient. A uh, piece in order to get to several different museums and whatnot, because you could just take like a couple million, just put it this museum, cause a million, then <laughs> <in> that museum.
2: <laughs> oh, I can't imagine that though, because think about how much all of that would weigh. Oh, you're right. Well, think about how much a hundred million alone weighs. I mean, <laughs> well, a hundred million of anything, but like a like a porcelain, pe- like you're talking clay, like that's that's a that's a heavy material. Yep. Um. Because, you know, yeah, kudos to him on, on getting all of that done and getting it all transported. Um, And kudos to him, like I said, for having having the guts to to put out this work, because as we've alluded to in his personal narrative, he has been imprisoned for for a period and faced serious backlash. And I don't think we even said why. Um, no, no. I don't want to I don't want to get into the the graphic details of this but basically he was calling out um he was calling out some corruption in the government uh, the story as I understand it is um accusations that people were skimming off the top and taking shortcuts in construction of buildings and notably a school that Ooh. caused it to collapse and thousands were sort of missing or killed as a result of that and he was raising public he was agitating publicly about that raising consciousness about it so you know he is one who has acted from everything i understand acted nobly um you know not agitating for the sake of agitating but because of important human rights issues And that has not gone over well, but he has been willing to suffer the consequences for doing the right thing and calling attention to that. So tip of the hat on that.
3: Yeah, all the credit in the world to him for being for being brave enough to be able to stand up and actually say what needs to be said in this kind of government instead of, you know just kind of sitting back and idling by and just letting people admire his art. Like the fact that he's willing to put himself out there and say what needs to be said is, is a bold thing that we need more of in this world.
2: Yeah. And I, I think it's cool that he does this in so many different ways, whether it is <laughs> through a hundred million seeds thrown on the floor of a warehouse or <laughs> a heavy metal song and music videos protest or, or yeah.
3: having like the the Olympic Stadium, the one that everyone in the world is going to see, not just for 2008, but for years on end, and letting everyone know, yeah, this is a toilet seat.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I I feel like on some level I should have done that because it would have been perfect for the final segment to say it was in the <laughs> um, Smart. <laughs> And I have nothing better to end this on other than to say thank you very much once again, my guest this week, Nathan, host of the Postmodern Art Podcast. Well, thank thank you very much.
3: Thank you, Kyle, for giving me this opportunity and introducing me to an incredible artist. Um, I now have a new dream guest. I don't know how successful I'd be to get him, but I'd love to just crack into his mind and talk about this stuff because this is – This is interesting. So thank you so much for introducing me to an incredible artist today.
2: Thank you once again. And I will, of course, link your podcast in my show notes for anyone who's interested in checking out the Postmodern Art Podcast.